Hi, I'm Paul Jay, and welcome to the Analysis.News podcast. If the movement in the streets is going to be a mass movement with sustainability and power to bring about transformative change, the working class, particularly the unionized working class, which includes workers of all colors, needs to wake up and fight for progressive politics, including within their own unions. Most of the major unions, but not all, have allied themselves with corporate Democrats and have been a force for the status quo rather than real change. On the analysis.news, we're going to pay a lot of attention to the struggles inside the unions to elect a leadership that actually represents the workers and not just feather the nests of an elite stratum of union officials. Perhaps the most critical struggle that workers and unions must take up is for a Green New Deal that addresses the urgency of the climate crisis. My guest today has been involved in this struggle for decades. He's been a leader in raising the issues of the climate crisis within the context of the economic and immediate labor struggles. Frank Hammer was based in Detroit over 50 years as a labor activist and leader fighting for social and environmental justice. He's the former president and bargaining chair of UAW, Local 909 and General Motors at Warren, Michigan. And he's a retired UAW GM international representative. He's co-founder of the Auto Workers Caravan and co-chair of the International Auto Workers Council, GM section, and is a leading member of several worker solidarity networks within the UAW and in the U.S. and global labor movements. In other words, Frank Hammer is a born organizer. Thanks for joining us, Frank. <laughs> Thank you, Paul. Uh, glad to be here. So start with what's what's going on now in, in Detroit, in the streets, uh, and, and how this might affect the uh, workers' movement in Detroit. So like so many other cities across the U.S., there has been such an upsurge of response to the immediate incident with the murder of George Floyd, but is, of course, uh, much broader than that. So we have had uh, numerous demonstrations here in the city. Um, and to tell you, we have had demonstrations in small towns outside of Detroit. We've had demonstrations in the suburbs of Detroit. And if you know anything about my city, it's one of the most segregated regions in, in the U.S., you know, it's Detroit is an 85% African-American town. And to see uh, the demonstrations, not only in the city where you would maybe anticipate them, but also see them in places like Troy, which are eight to six, six to eight miles north of Detroit, which is mostly a white suburb, to see them in Sterling Heights, which is mostly a white suburb. And these are areas where there are auto workers and retired auto workers it, I think it's going to have a very powerful impact on the labor movement because it's showing visibly the solidarity that exists that maybe otherwise might not have been anticipated. The uh, thing with the history of the auto workers in Detroit, um, it certainly changed to some extent after 07, 08, but auto workers used to do really well. I mean, it was you know, not abnormal for auto workers to assume they'd have a couple of cars in the garage. Uh, they didn't never had to worry about 
getting fed. They many of them even own cottages. They assumed they could afford to send their kids to university. They were really in the privileged, to a large extent, upper stratum of the working class. Now, in 07, 08, a lot of that changed, especially for uh, workers entering the auto industry. I believe they went from a starting wage of, what, 26 bucks an hour or something down to 12 to 14 bucks an hour, which is a drastic drop. In, fr- in fact, I think it's you that told me once, Frank, that uh, it's for the first time uh, auto workers, new, newly hired auto workers will be the first auto workers that can't afford to buy a car. But this pandemic is changing it, I would think, even more drastically. Workers who thought could never, I should say, never could imagine they could be poor in poverty uh, without income. Uh, this has got to be putting a scare into a lot of people in Detroit that never thought they'd face that. Now, that's not just white workers, I must say, because, you know, there's a lot of black workers that were doing relatively well in the auto industry. But what is the future of that? First of all, it's quite true that uh, in the year before the financial meltdown uh, in Wall Street and the consequent threatened bankruptcy of GM and Chrysler and Ford, that the year before that is when the UAW and the Detroit Three began to implement the cuts that you're describing, uh, including the fact that new workers came in at the half half of the wage rate as the uh, seniority workers, and also lost, for example, any right to a pension. They were given uh, instead. They were uh, negotiated uh, 401k plans and healthcare. Uh, uh, was reduced uh, and so on and, and, and in many different ways. And this was all before the bankruptcy. So the bankruptcy actually uh, came on the heels of concessions that were already severe concessions that were already made in the auto industry. And I think that um, it, it, it would be important to note that the GM strike, the UAW GM strike that occurred last year, I think was a belated response and it was a pent-up pent anger about what had happened to the ranks of auto workers. And without a lot of preparation by the UAW leadership, I would say it was dismal. Workers uh, persevered and weathered a 40-day strike, uh, which had not happened for 40, 50 years, and attempted to you know, return to what they had previously known to be what auto workers' lives were like. And what I saw in that, and I think it was also precursor to what we're seeing now, is that the rank-and-file solidarity that I witnessed on the picket line was really quite astounding, given that there wasn't a lot of preparation for the strike. And you had uh, workers, uh, and I want to give a particular example of my plant, my plant, which is closed, was closed, I should say, uh, was down to like a handful of workers and not enough to, you know, people uh, a picket line. We had uh, Ford workers, we had Chrysler workers that came to the GM picket lines to swell our ranks and to support our, the struggle of the GM workers. So you have so you have that pre- precursor of all these cuts and these multiple tier creations and subcontractors within the factory and all of this negative um, drag down of the U.S. working class and auto workers, and you had a re- you had a response to it in that 40-day strike, 
and certainly under different kind of leadership, it would have had different results. But it, it really stands out, and I believe that that had a lot to do with the kind of solidarity that I think is being expressed now in the face of the uh, not only the, you know the pandemic, but also uh, the question of uh, Black Lives Matter. So you were chair of a large bargaining unit for many years. Um, what what was and to the extent you you can talk about now, what what was the relations between white and black workers, uh, in, especially in the midst of struggles like that? So you know we're speaking of the '90s, uh, the '80s and '90s, um, and I can tell you that white and black workers rubbed elbows every day in my factory and. Um, you could see both how factories serve to integrate the working class. Uh, you could also observe uh, at the end of the shift, if you stood out by the gate and saw where the cars were going, you could see that the majority of the white workers were driving north to, you know, to the suburbs and the majority of black workers were driving south to uh, Detroit. So it... Clearly, we were living in a segregated environment, but the factories are where we came together. And even though you would see uh, black workers and white workers maybe hanging out uh, in different groupings in the cafeteria or in the rest areas, there was still an amiability and amicability between white and black workers that uh, I fear with the closing of plants, you know, begins to get lost. But uh, I would say, uh, generally speaking, certainly in my plant, which is a suburban plant, there was a, a surprising uh, amicability and solidarity between white and black workers. And, uh, you know, um, maybe the sequel to that was shown in the picket lines, but we have fewer factories that are operating and therefore less solidarity. Uh, on a day-to-day -day basis. So then what do you make of these protests breaking out in white suburbs in, in support of the whole movement against police repression and such? So I believe that, um, especially I think in the context of the pandemic with all of a sudden we have the layoffs of 30 or 40 million workers I can't imagine that that has not had an impact on people feeling that they're getting a really raw deal and all of a sudden they're out of work and it's a result of this uh, slow uh, response by uh, the Trump administration uh, and many deaths. Uh, we've had, uh, I think, at least 5,000 deaths here in Michigan, many of them here in Detroit. and. But I, I got to tell you that when we had the strike, the solidarity between white and black workers in the in the GM strike was uh, just exceptional. And I and I just um, there's a it, to me it expressed an undercurrent of working class solidarity. Uh, the pigment of your skin be damned. That's what I got from the GM strike, and I think that's what I'm seeing in these uh, in these actions uh, in the suburbs. And never mind, but I, you know, you'd have to add that it, these are young workers. These are young, young people mostly who are out and doing that. And I think young people have their own crisis that they're encountering, whether it be, you know, the questions of being able to go to a university, whether you're going to have a future 
considering what's going on with the climate crisis. Uh, I think that there's a lot of angst among young people, and I think that also explains why they're out there. And I think that it was unmistakable that uh, the police action against, against actions against black people uh, are beyond, uh, you, you know, you, just beyond deniability. It's the media and the social media especially has exposed that, and they're not going to be able to put it back in the box. It's, uh, you know, people understand there is a, a, an enormous racial inequity, and it really comes out terribly in the pandemic, and it comes out terribly in the police violence. Well, we're going to be doing another podcast soon with Frank and one of his colleagues from UAW, and we're going to talk, dig in more into some of the union politics and uh, how this pandemic and how this uprising is affecting that. But as, as I said in the introduction, perhaps the most important thing that we need workers to take up along with the day-to-day struggles and trying to get, uh, you know, overthrow this conservative union leadership in many of the unions. Um, but the issue of climate is critical. And it, it's interesting because there are woke, to use the word, workers who are organizing and with, with a very, very uh, laser focus on the issue of climate. And Frank's one of them and working with them. So start by talking about uh, uh, you went to a conference in South Africa, which was an auto workers, international auto workers conference. So what was that about? So there's been an effort underway by uh, militant workers in Germany to begin with, to begin to form an international uh, rank and file workers, auto workers organization to address uh, the crises that auto workers face globally. And these efforts began uh, well over a decade ago, and by 2015, they had gotten themselves organized enough that they actually had founded the organization, which is the International Automotive Workers Council or Conference. And they formed in 2015, and they created an agenda, and they you know, scheduled a, a, a future conference to consolidate the organization and that's what took place not in Germany, but in South Africa, just in the outskirts of Johannesburg. And it was a very uh, deliberate political decision to do it in the global south so as to reach out to the auto workers in the global south. So we had um, 19 different countries represented, uh, somewhere between 250 and 300 people, and actually had 42 delegates representing some of those countries. And over the course of a few days, uh, we deliberated and came up with a, a document that uh, an overwhelming majority of the workers uh, agreed with that were represented there. And one of the, well, one of the, you know, there are several, several economic planks, uh, including the call for a global uh, 30, uh, 30 hours work for 40 hours pay movement. Uh, which is very pressing in terms of uh, creating uh, employment and, and workers being compensated for their productivity. But it also uh, zeroed in on the climate and the environmental crisis more generally, saying that the auto workers of the world need to collaborate and support and join with the militant environmental movement for the conversion 
of the auto industry for renewable and green renewable energy and green and the green economy. And it's been some development that's been coming forward in the last, uh, I want to say, six, eight years. And along with this uh, auto workers meeting where they agreed to all this, uh, there was also the formation back in 2014 of something called the Environmental Union. And the Environmental Union is really the organization where they want to see the collaboration between militant environmentalists and the uh, militant auto workers movement. So uh, it was very heartening to see that this was the focus. Um, it is a very challenging for auto workers who are confronted with all kinds of struggles regarding plant closures, regarding uh, you know multi-tier wage structures that are being implemented by the companies and so on, to take their eyes off of those day-to-day life struggles to see that uh, we have an overarching uh, struggle regarding uh, our industry's role in perpetu- you know, in, in bringing on what can be described only as a climate catastrophe with, uh, you know, carbon, uh, you know, uh, greenhouse gases and carbon emissions. So it was, um, it was a, a call that uh, the auto workers uh, bring back, uh, bringing back to their own countries and want to. Uh, promote and there's we're saying that auto workers need to understand the environmental movement better. Auto workers need to bring the environmental movement, uh, you know, into their ranks. And at the same time, environmental the environmental movement has to step up and support workers' struggles. So that that was the gist of it. So you're also involved in a something happening in Oshawa, Ontario, Canada, something called Green Jobs Oshawa. What's going on there? So it's kind of what I would describe it as an implementation of what this conference was uh, promoting. And the implementation in, in Oshawa is uh, taking place at the uh, GM Oshawa plant, which along with my plant, uh, was closed uh, in 2019, and some of the workers uh, in the in the Unifor Local 222 there, who are far-sighted and saw that this is a, that we must move to a conversion and to repurpose this incredible Oshawa facility toward the making of, in their case, we're talking about making uh, electric vehicles and the electric vehicles that they had in mind were uh, for production for government use, including for the Postal Service and all kinds of other uh, mass uses uh, that the government could put electric vehicles. And they have been saying in the Oshawa Green Jobs, uh, Green, Oshawa Green Jobs, that uh, they want to see the nationalization, the government take, take over of the Oshawa facility in order to implement production of uh, uh, battery-driven vehicles. So that movement uh, has been going on for a, a while now, and uh, they're making some headway, but they're not getting support from the U- uniform bureaucracy, which we were referring to earlier. That's, that's the name of the what used to be CAW, Canadian Auto that Workers, is, is now called Unifor in yes, Canada. And, the yeah. Canadian Auto- and, they're, and, they're, and they're not getting support? No. Why? Um, so, 
um, I, you know, it's like, uh, I don't, you know, it's like favoring the corporate agenda and not challenging the question of uh, government proprietorship over uh, over this uh, complex. Um, very reticent to move in that direction. It's true also of the my UAW. And it's unfathomable because I'm sure you can see some words somewhere about where they are concerned about climate change. But when it really gets to the point of, well, what are we going to do about it? They're, they're reticent to do anything at all. So, yeah, the, the uh, Green Jobs Asha was operating on its own. And, uh, but now with the advent of the coronavirus and COVID-19, they are now saying, let's convert the plant to manufacturing PPE, whether it be, uh, you know, masks or the N95 masks and so on. But the whole idea is we've got to put these, uh, you know, abandoned uh, factories to some, you know, useful uh, social uh, product uh, that we can use in this in the, in the current crisis. And I just want to tell you that with that going on in, in Oshawa, that here in the U.S., uh, by public pressure, uh, Trump was sort of forced into doing the same thing in regards to my plant and another GM facility in Kokomo, Indiana, whereby my plant was reopened to produce masks, and we are producing the masks and the N95 masks at my facility, which, you know, used to make transmission. But not, not with public ownership, but under this, you know, Wartime Powers Act or whatever it's yeah. called, he was able to order them to do Trump, it. Uh, so there was this, uh, unbeknownst to me, and unbeknownst to I'm sure a lot of people, there was uh, 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 the Defense Production Act that was passed around 1950 in anticipation of the Korean War that enabled the government to mandate production and what was the products that were required and mandate companies to perform, to produce them, much in the line of what was done with the arsenal of democracy, uh, what we call the democracy uh, arsenal of democracy uh, in, in the lead up to World War II, where by government mandate, U.S. companies, car companies were mandated to stop production of vehicles for the production of warplanes and tanks and so on. So it has that kind of a flavor to it. Trump was reticent to use that authority to compel GM to do that. But the reality is that it's happened. And it's a bit of an aspect of without nationalizing the GM plant, it is a move in that direction that is saying the government can mandate what society needs in production facilities, especially ones that have been abandoned, but ultimately in all of them. The thing is, in Canada, public ownership is not as alien a concept as it seems to be in the United States, although, frankly, there's quite a bit of public ownership in the U.S., too, that just never gets talked about. Uh, for example, there's a lot of hospitals that are state-owned hospitals and so on. But in Canada, you have uh, the the liquor license, uh, LCBO, Liquor Control Board of Ontario, does all the liquor sales in British Columbia, I believe also in Quebec. But in BC, you've got public auto insurance. So it's not so crazy for the government to take over something. On the other hand, they don't like the idea, I suppose, of opening the door to having to take over public ownership for the purpose of dealing with climate change. Because it's obvious that's the only way you're really going to get it done. The marketplace won't do it. And, you know, I mean, here, I mean, 
in the U.S., of course, the struggle, the leverage has been in the other direction, uh, where this constant privatizing, privatizing, and privatizing. And yes, we are confronted with the notion that we have to reverse the privatization of public assets and make put in public ownership that which is in currently a private assets. So that is the struggle. And, uh, you know, I think that uh, with the coronavirus and the, the pandemic, that uh, it begins to uh, reveal to uh, uh, everyone that the private-based capitalist economy is not designed to deal with the public good. So you talked about hospitals. How many are now privatized uh, for-profit ventures that their maximization of profit meant that they hardly had any vacant beds on any given day? Yeah, because they didn't they didn't want empty beds of elective surgeries that are far more profitable. And even the big nonprofit hospitals like Johns Hopkins and others, the fact is they're actually run as if they were for profit. They have the same kind of bottom line to worry about. And they the same reluctance to open up beds where in Canada, at least because the hospitals are publicly owned. It was it was the, by, there's lots of problems with what happened up in Canada as well, kind of where I happen to be right now. But they were able to allocate resources far more uh, rationally and efficient, efficiently than happened in the United States. And to come back to the question of climate, uh, it, so to me, the, 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 maybe the, the silver lining, if there is one, to the coronavirus and, the, and COVID-19 is that it's kind of a public demonstration of we are not prepared for crises um, of that nature. And the climate crisis, which of course is sort of evaporated on the US media, because that's the last thing they wanna talk about is the climate crisis and the environmental crisis. And it wasn't much there to begin with. Absolutely. But it's, you know, any, any opportunity they have to erase it from the airwaves they will do it. And that's because they're in the grips of the, you know, the fossil fuel industry, uh, prim- prim- you know, primarily, uh, but, you know, the capitalists in general, and they do not want to talk about this conversion that's, that, that we need to do in a short, in a short amount of time uh, in order to address, you know, the impending catastrophe that, you know, the United Nations has laid out uh, in detail over many years. Yeah, well, if people want to take a look at the article I did on the uh, website, the analysis website, uh, I did something called Three um, Financial Institutions Control More Wealth Than the GDP of China. Uh, this is BlackRock, Vanguard, and State Street, and, and and other smaller ones. Not only are they essentially the majority owners of the fossil fuel companies, uh, of the media, of the arms industry, like essentially the same banks control all everything, really. It's like 90% of the S&P 500. So yeah, the media is, it's, it's, it's directly in the grips of these financial institutions who are the same institutions that own the majority of almost every fossil fuel company in the world, with the exception of uh, Total in uh, France and maybe the Saudis, a few of the government ones. So, and by the way, I, I want to add that one of the arguments in Oshawa, and it's certainly an argument that can be made within our ranks, is that during the bankruptcy bailout, I mean, taxpayers in Canada and taxpayers in the U.S., 
literally bailed out, uh, uh, you know, my company, GM, uh, to the tune of a few billion in Canada, to the tune of 11 billion in, in, in the U.S. And we are uh, more than entitled to, you know, win back uh, that, that which we gave up to, to save their, their hides and to move in the direction of, of conversion. And, you know, GM wants to play with it. Uh, when they threatened to close the Detroit Hamtramck assembly plant here in Detroit, uh, they actually didn't close it, but they're wanting only to produce these uh, high-end signature electric uh, trucks at a small, uh, you know, small numbers. And God knows how long it's going to take them to do that uh, in this process of conversion. But they really have to step up their game. And if they're not able to step up their game, then that is where the role of the, of the government is going to have to play a serious, play a, a serious hand as they did in the lead up to World War II. The, uh, in the future, Frank's going to help us cover uh, what's happening in the workers' movement. Uh, you were telling me before that there's something like 250 strikes going on right now, Frank? Uh, what I was referring to is that in the last few months, there have been, to my knowledge, approximately 250 strikes of various kinds, a lot from the frontline workers in protesting the absence of PPEs and equipment and hazardous conditions. Um, and there have also been uh, actions of solidarity, for example, just to give you one example, in, in, in Minneapolis, uh, the cops, uh, the police force, uh, wanted the uh, bus drivers uh, to drive the municipal bus drivers to drive their buses to the sites of uh, where the demonstrations were being held so that if there were mass arrests, the uh, police could pack in the arrestees in the buses and the drivers would take the arrestees to the, you know, to the jails and the bus drivers refused. So there are actions like that. Uh, that are taking place uh, in various places around the country. Another example of a different kind of a situation was in uh, Louisiana, where the sanitation workers, uh, and I don't remember whether it was in New Orleans, the sanitation workers uh, were demanding uh, PPE equipment and hazard duty pay, and the uh, municipality or the state refused and fired all those workers and apparently replaced them with labor for, uh, prison labor uh, from uh, local jails. So there are these things, there are these struggles that are going around, and apparently there's in, they're in the hundreds. All right, well, Frank, you're, you're going to help us stay on top of this, right? I'd be more than happy to. All right, thanks very much, Frank. Thank you, Paul. Thanks very much. Great work. And thank you for joining us on the Analysis.News podcast. Mm-hmm.